Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastor elders here. And after this, you might be asking the question, why do we team preach? But now you know the answer to that. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, if you would, please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are a glorious God. You're the creator of heaven and earth. And we come to you this morning, Lord, submitting to your word. Father, where our hearts are discouraged, encourage them, Lord. Where we are sinful and in need of repentance and conviction, Lord, convict our hearts by your spirit, Lord, by your word. Be with us as your word is proclaimed and make us more like Christ. And may you be glorified and always say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 2007, a man took the stage to explain a fascinating innovation that was coming. Thousands entered into a room to listen, expecting to be amazed at what would be revealed. And this is what he said. This is the day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. We have been very fortunate to introduce a few of these into the world, but today we're introducing three revolutionary products in one. The first is a widescreen iPod with touch controls. The second is a revolutionary mobile phone. And the third is a breakthrough internet communication device. So three things, a touchscreen iPod, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. Three things, an iPod, a phone. You're getting the picture, right? It's one thing. These are not three separate devices, but one device, and we are calling it iPhone. Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. As you've probably picked up by now, this is the keynote speech Steve Jobs gave on January 9th, 2007 to announce the release of the first ever iPhone. Prior to its release, smartphones had been in use. In quarter four of 2006, approximately 22 million smartphones were sold. However, None of them looked or acted anything like the iPhone. I know you Android people are very upset right now. <laughs> Bear with me. Within two years of release, Apple took over significant market share. Watching with anticipation of this release, the world could not imagine how the development and the use of the iPhone would impact just about every part of our lives. Maps and GPS devices, useless. Phone books, alarm clocks, CD players, out the window, done. Everything you could need, all put into one device. The iPhone would almost become a status symbol. If you had one, you were in. Now everyone has something like it. You can now play games with friends, be connected on the go, never missing. The change that was ushered in by the iPhone was revolutionary. It changed us, 
and it changed our world. In Isaiah 61, the Lord's anointed is announcing his own piece of news. However, this isn't new innovation. Instead, this is further revelation of a promise that God has made since Genesis. And this promise will impact every part of our lives. To refresh our memory, God's people have been taken away to exile, and now they're wondering, will God save them again? They know God has saved them in the past, but will he do it again? How will he do it? And when will he do it? Up to this point, Isaiah has answered the question that God will, in fact, rescue his people. He has also shown them that God has promised that he would rescue his people by sending one specific person. Here in Isaiah 61, that rescuer is on full display. R.C. Sproul's devotional on Isaiah 61 says it this way. We have then in Isaiah 61 what one commentator describes as the climactic representation of the servant of the Lord. The servant is the ideal Israel, the Davidic Messiah, who frees his people, not only from captivity of the human enemies, but that of sin and death. In so doing, he gives eternal beauty to his own. This is the climax of Isaiah's work on the Messiah. It's the explicit description that Isaiah has been referring to since chapter 7, 9, 11, 42, and 53. Here in 61, Isaiah is leaving no doubt to the reader that this specific person will be the one who comes to rescue God's people. Isaiah is going to make it very clear that when God's people encounter the Lord's anointed, it will be revolutionary to their lives. It will change the way they live. It will change how other people see them. And it will change how they see life itself. Isaiah is going to make it clear excuse me, just simply put, when the Lord's anointed ministers to his people, they change. And first, we'll see what this ministry of the Lord's anointed is, and then we'll see how it changes who God's people are and what they'll do. And lastly, we'll see how God's people are marked as a people of joy. So first, in verses 1 through 3a, we see that the Lord's anointed serves us. One of the characteristics of this section of Scripture is that there are a couple different voices throughout the passage. So it's important for us to identify who is actually speaking throughout Isaiah. The prophet has spoken at times on behalf of the Lord, and other times he's spoken on behalf of God's people. And sometimes he's spoken for himself. This phrase, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, references back to a theme throughout the Old Testament and a figure specifically known as the Lord's anointed, which you may know is translated Messiah, which is also translated to our common language, Christ. I think sometimes we say Christ like it's Jesus's last name, but the name Christ being attributed to Jesus is an acknowledgement that he is the Lord's anointed to rescue his people from their sin and death. Jesus goes as far to interpret this passage for himself in the New Testament. And just a quick 
like highlight on studying your Bible, if you're reading something in the Old Testament and it's interpreted in the New Testament, that's the best way to understand the Old Testament passage. He, Jesus, is use, Jesus uses it twice, once in Matthew 11, 2 through 4, and in Luke 4, 18 through 19. And in both passages, Jesus makes the claim that Isaiah 61 is pointing to his coming and his ministry. In Matthew, John the Baptist is discouraged. He's in prison, and he very, very likely on some level knows that death is coming. He can feel it. And so he's discouraged. He's, I, I was here to proclaim the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist understood himself to be that voice in the wilderness who would proclaim the coming of the Messiah that was promised previously in Isaiah. And so now he's sitting in prison being like, did I mess it? Did I mess it up? Did I mess it up? So John sends his disciples and Jesus just simply says, go tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. For John, that was enough. Being a student of the Old Testament, he knew that Jesus couldn't claim this passage as a rabbi or a prophet without committing extreme blasphemy. Jesus was saying he was the Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Secondly, Jesus in a temple service reads this passage from the podium. He opens the scroll and he reads, the spirit in Luke 18, the spirit of the Lord, or excuse me, Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, returned it to the intendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The scene quickly goes from everyone being amazed at him and then really mad at him and trying to drive him off a cliff and kill him. Putting that aside, Jesus is making claim to being the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, and making it clear what his ministry would be marked by. See, Jesus came healing people physically, but greater than that, he came bringing good news to the poor, healing the brokenhearted and proclaiming liberty to the captive. He came to a people who were not free. For in Isaiah's time, when the reader's hearing this, they're going into oppression. 700 years later, Jesus comes. God's people are still in captivity, politically speaking. But Jesus is making the point that, as it's been said throughout Isaiah, that your captivity is greater than political. Your problems are greater than what you're seeing on this earth. Your problem is your sin. And I have come to set you free of that. That is what I proclaim today. Mankind, you and me, we have been in captivity since the fall in Genesis. And that is what Jesus came to fix. Are you brokenhearted? Do you ever feel that you cannot escape from doing wrong? Do you feel like you are unworthy of God? Can I tell you something? You are. Welcome to church. You might be thinking, why did you just tell me I'm unworthy? I've been telling me my whole life, I am worthy. The reality is, is we all in our sin are unworthy. But God, but the Lord's anointed has made a way. 
the Lord's anointed has come and he proclaimed the good news that he has died in your place for your sins. Don Green says it this way, that the only people that belong to the realm of Christ are those who are recognized that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they have no righteousness of their own. That's what poor in spirit means. That's how we come to the Lord, bankrupt, without righteousness of our own. But we are counted as righteous, as Romans tells us, because of the work of the Lord's anointed. One part I want to deal with before moving on to how the Lord's ministry changes us is in both instances when Jesus quotes this passage, he leaves out a key line in verse 2 about him announcing the day of God's vengeance. Why do you think Jesus chose to leave that out? Do you think it was just going to be a little too politically incorrect? Maybe he was afraid the crowd would get too upset. Well, that definitely happened already. Did Isaiah just get it wrong here? Was the anointed one not actually coming to bring God's vengeance? See, Jesus' is coming initiated God's plan, this, uh, the second, the, excuse me, the new covenant. But it hasn't been completed yet. Ray Orland says this, that Christ fulfills all the prophecies, but not all at the same time. At his first coming, he inaugurated the year of the Lord, his favor. At the second coming, he'll bring the day of vengeance of our God when the door of grace will be shut forever. He goes on to explain this mountain analogy that Isaiah is standing on the outside of one mountain looking over and there's a valley in between and you can see another second mountain in the distance. And the first mountain is the coming of the Lord's anointed when he will proclaim grace and freedom, proclaim liberty to the captives. And then there's this valley and we live in that valley right now where we look back and we see that Jesus came. We see Calvary where Jesus died and we see the empty tomb. But then we look forward to a day when Christ will return. It will happen. And in the way the Old Testament believers looked forward to Christ's first coming, we look forward to his second coming. We don't only look back, church. We look forward as well. Yeah. Revelation 19, 11 through 13 says it this way. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Church, do you believe that Jesus is coming again? What does that do to you? How does that change your life? It may give us a little bit of fear. So it just becomes a lot easier not to think about. You, like me, might have been greatly impacted by stories like Left Behind where you were afraid one day you were going to come home and your parents' clothes were going to be on the ground. No one to be found. Now, to be clear, while that has put a lot of false fear into the believer's life, for the unbeliever, and if you're in here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, Christ's second coming, the Bible tells us, will be a day of dread. That's why in the song, It Is Well With My Soul, it says, O Lord, haste the day when my face shall become sight and the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. 
And then he goes on later, he says, even so, it is well with my soul. It's a scary day, but for the believer, it's a glorious day. See, we're not supposed to be like some scared child who thinks our abusive father is coming back to hurt us. But instead, we're supposed to be like a dog who's waiting at the door for his owner. When that car hits the, the driveway, the dog goes to the window and it's looking, right? It sees, oh, he's here, he's here. And then she, she runs over to the door once you get in the garage and it's just waiting there and you open the door and you're, like, you're here. And the dog's like, yes, I am here. I'm always going to be here waiting for you. And that's us as we wait for our coming for the coming of our God. Because the Lord's, uh, the, Lord has anointed, the Lord's anointed has ministered to us, that's how we look forward to Christ's coming, waiting, anticipating, and hoping. The New Testament tells us the same thing in Matthew 25. He gives three parables where Jesus is telling his disciples to keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. His disciples kept watch. And now we keep watch. For the believer, it doesn't drive us to fear. It drives us to ministry. Yeah. Ephesians 5.16 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We are here for a short time. We are on this earth for a short time for sure. But even more than that, we're in our current relationships for a short time. Very few relationships last a lifetime. Few last several years. Who are you seeing now? Who is in your life now? They may not be in your life forever. If we are the church, what is believing this? How does believing this as the church change us? How does this change how we preach the gospel to our neighbors and our friends and our family. God has promised that the Lord's anointed is coming again and he has called us to be ready. Let's tell others what's coming. So the knowledge of Christ's coming changes us because the truth that Jesus came and made himself known to us has changed us. And that's what we see in the rest of this chapter. The Lord's anointed changes his people. See, we are the object of this story. We are not the subject, meaning we are not the point of redemption, but we are a part of redemption by God's grace. God is redeeming all of creation, not just humanity. All of creation will be redeemed in his second coming. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When God saves, he doesn't just bring us back to square one to give us a second chance. When he saved you, he made you new. In this section, we see in many different ways and aspects of life of how God's ministry changes us. The Lord's anointed ministry changes us. We're going to just highlight three. But I want to encourage you to go look at those on your own. But before we do, all of this, let's keep in mind the context of Isaiah and the context of 61. All of these changes come because the Lord's anointed has come. One way Isaiah shows that, that God's people will change is they will be called oaks of righteousness. If you look with me in verse uh, 3b, 
We'll start at the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We live in Florida, so I know I don't need to explain to you what an oak is, but have you ever tried to cut one down with like chainsaw? Creates a ton of heat. In Jacksonville, there's an oak tree named Treaty Oak that has a trunk of 25 feet in circumference and rises to 70 feet. It's huge, it's strong, and it's not going anywhere. It actually got its name in 1936. It was already big then. It was 90 years ago. See, the work of the Lord's anointed makes his people righteous. Your mind may be going to Psalm 1, right? What does it say? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in each season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Do you feel like your righteousness is strong like a tree? Or do you realize you're like chaff? See, as a believer, a follower of the Lord's anointed, we are called oaks of righteousness because as it says later in verse three, as the planting of the Lord, because of the Lord's work. We are oaks because we have been given righteousness from Christ. This is why the Christian life is marked with everlasting joy because we know we should be chaff. We know we are chaff, but instead we are called oaks of righteousness, strong, not moving. If you feel that unrighteousness this morning, can I invite you to step into that and confess that to Christ and plead his righteousness for your life? This is why the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ came. Next, looking at verse four, he says, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. At this point, both in Isaiah, but then also in Jesus' time, as I already mentioned, God's people are in exile. They are not their own nation. They are ruled by another kingdom, and their homeland is devastation. And there's a constant theme throughout the prophets in the Old Testament that restoration will come. And we see this a little bit in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra when the Lord rebuilds, when, when God's people rebuild the wall, right? But keeping in the theme of Isaiah, it's not just about the land. It's about the devastation that has been brought to their lives and to their families because of their sin. You see, our God is big enough to redeem what you and I have messed up, whether he redeems it on this side of heaven or when he comes back again. If you're in here this morning and you believe that you have messed your life up too much to where God cannot get a hold of you, can I tell you you're wrong? Our God is bigger than that. The blood of Christ spilt on the cross covers a multitude of sins. Whether you have been abused, whether you have been the abuser, whether you have sexual sin in your life, God can redeem you. He is strong enough. Last week, Tim asked us, do you believe that God is big enough to handle 2020? 
Do you believe that God is big enough to redeem your life? Do you believe that the sacrifice made by Jesus Christ is big enough for redemption? Despite how far gone the ruins may look, our God rebuilds his people. Do you feel ruined this morning? Run to Jesus. Friend of sinners. Next, and this one's Verse six, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations and in their glory, you shall boast. Being a priest has been the call of Israel since the covenant was given to Abraham. The Israelites were God's chosen people to show the world his glory. The priests in the Old Testament stood between God and man. The priest was how people knew who God was. Now all believers serve as priests. First Peter 2 further elaborates on this truth, saying, You also, the living stone, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then in verse 9 it says, But you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession. For what purpose? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, by God's spirit, we become priests. We do not go to a priest to mediate between God and us. We have an eternal mediator in Jesus Christ our Lord, as the book of Hebrews tells us. So as priests of the Lord Church, what do you do? You proclaim his excellencies. We proclaim Christ until Christ returns, knowing he's coming back again. What stops us from proclaiming his excellencies? Are we scared that uh, people won't like us or maybe think we're weird? Maybe. I think a lot of people already think I'm weird, so it's not because of being a Christian. I know that of you as well. (laughs) Maybe we think we're going to mess it up. We're going to fumble the gospel. And while either one of those may be true, I'd like to argue this morning that we don't really proclaim his excellencies because we don't think he's excellent. Or we've ultimately just become too distracted with something we think is more excellent. See, we've overcomplicated, I think, what it looks like to share the gospel. And we've developed a little bit of poor expectations of what a response should look like. As Christians, we should be marked by gospel truths The gospel should be what people know about us. It's something we regularly talk about and naturally weave into conversation because it's what we love more than anything or anyone. It's not supposed to be this manufactured, can I talk to you for a moment about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Some some sales pitch, some forced sales pitch. See, we proclaim his excellencies because we've seen that he's excellent. We've seen the fact that we are chaff and he has called us oaks of righteousness. What, what do you believe is excellent this morning? 
That's something we need to ask ourselves every day. What do, you, what do I believe is excellent this morning? You may not use the word excellent, but what is it that you love? What is it that you can't stop talking about? You may, might be a TV show or a hobby, football. It might be your children or a new game or a vacation coming up, your work. Often, I work in sales. And oftentimes when I tell people I'm in sales, they say, I could never sell people anything. You're lying unintentionally. You sell people stuff every day. You sell people things by telling them what you love. And ultimately, we try every day to persuade people for their benefit to join in our joy of said product or event. And as Christians, that's what we do. We persuade others to join in our joy for their benefit of knowing God. We see that's explained here in verse 11, that the righteous, that righteousness and praise will sprout up before all the nations. People from all over the world will worship our God. Church, the harvest is plentiful. There is a harvest, but the laborers are few, as Jesus tells us. Go into the harvest. And I ask us, what do people know about you? What do your non-believing friends believe you love? Is it your hobby? What do your children think you love? What's the thing they expect you to bring up when you talk to them? If you're a believer in here and you're asking yourself, how do I share the gospel better? The answer simply is take inventory of what you love because you love to talk about what you love. When the Lord's anointed ministers to his people, they change. Their character changes, what they love changes, and what they do changes. And lastly, how they see the world despite their circumstances changes. Finally, we joyfully respond, church. The Christian life is a life characterized as joy, not because we just tell each other to be happy. No, the Christian life is commanded to be joyful because we know God and we know God to be faithful. In verse 8 through 9, we see God double down on his promise. God makes the point that because of his character, he will make an everlasting covenant with his people. God's people will be known so that his glory may be seen. Moving on to verse 10. He says, I will rejoice, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, for he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Because of what God has done for his church, what we just went through for the last 20 minutes or so, we rejoice. Instead of our shame, there will be a double portion, as it says in verse 7. Could, our most important circumstance, our most important problem in our life has been fixed. Our circumstance is great. We are clothed in salvation and righteousness. We are seen as righteous. Could you imagine fighting for your life, drowning almost to the point of death, then someone jumps in the water and rescues you? You've been inhaling water, and now you're breathing oxygen. And while sitting on the beach, grasping that air, thankful for a moment that you're alive, you start to notice that the sand is hot. And your focus turns to the sand and how uncomfortable you are, completely forgetting the fact 
that you were, in fact, inhaling water. That's what we do with our Salvation Church. We look at 2020, we look at coronavirus, we look at politics, we look at political activist group, we look at our illness, we look at other people causing us trouble, drivers on the road, big or small, you name it, you all know it, you live your life, and we forget. And so the Christian life for us becomes a life marked not by joy. We don't have to live that way. Every day, looking back at the cross, looking back at that mountaintop church, looking back at Calvary, looking back at the resurrected Savior who rose and is seated at the right hand of God saying that this work is finished. You are redeemed, you are saved. And looking forward to Christ's second coming, we live a life marked with joy, waiting, anticipating, our Lord Jesus coming back again. Verse 11 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprout, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will righteousness, so righteousness and pra- cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Giving a quick, simple nature analogy here. If nature is reliable, even more reliable is the one who created nature. Despite what it might look like in the moment, God has promised to cause righteousness and praise to come. Despite what America looks like, or China, or Uganda, or Ukraine, or you name it, God will cause righteousness and praise to burst forth among the nations, church. Some of you in here, you're part of Teen Missions. Your goal is to go to the nations to proclaim Christ. And I say thank you for that. Some of you in here, you might go across the nation. Some of you might go across your, your neighborhood. You might go across your office to proclaim Christ's excellencies. But you can do so boldly and confidently, knowing that he is the one who will cause praise to be brought. Our God is the saving God. That is who he is. I want to invite the worship team to join me. Last week, Tim asked, I mentioned this earlier, do you believe God is big enough to handle 2020? Throughout Isaiah, God's people have been asking, is God big enough to handle Babylon? And God's saying, easily. I'm also big enough to handle your bigger problem, your sin. And God has given them a solution, a solution that will make their physical temporary problems seem small and revolutionize their lives. A life of mourning to joy. For no sense in a worldly manner other than the fact that Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come and he's coming again. The Jesus Storybook Bible is a children's Bible translated, paraphrased by Sally Lloyd-Jones. I want to highly recommend it to any parent in the room, the Jesus Storybook Bible. It does a good job of tying the entire story of the Bible together. Because church, if you're an adult, that's what the Bible is. It's, It's a long, redemptive story. And she paraphrases part of Isaiah saying this. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. He will come. I promise. And so God's people waited and they watched. And on a quiet night in Bethlehem, he came. And he lived a life perfect 
and died a death he didn't deserve so that we could be with him. If you're in here this morning and you have not given your life to Christ, I invite you to that. I plead with you. Come this morning. If you have been a churchgoer your whole life, but you have never confessed that I am a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ is the one who died so that I may live, I want to invite you to do that this morning. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And that is strictly for those who have confessed Christ as their Savior. If you take it without confessing Christ as your Savior, it's completely worthless to you. In fact, in many ways, you're mocking God. So I want to give you a chance, if you are in here this morning, to profess Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do something a little bit we don't normally do. I just I feel impressed to do it. So if you would, just bow your heads with me. And you might be like, I have no idea what to do right now. And because you might not know what to do, I want to just walk you through it, what I just said. I want to invite you to pray. I want you to confess to God your sin, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And then I want to invite you to plead Christ's righteousness because of his work on the cross. If you're in here this morning and that was the first time you did that, could, would you mind just raising your hand just so we can connect with you? If you're watching on the live stream this morning and it's the first time you're making that commitment, praying that prayer, I want to invite you to send us a message. Connect with a pastor elder you may know. We'd love to chat with you further. God has given us something amazing to remember his death and resurrection. You can look up with me now. We're going to take communion now. The reality is the whole point of communion is for us to remember Christ's work. First Corinthians, Paul leads the Lord's Supper this way, and I'll read from there. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the bread.
in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, we have just proclaimed the Lord's death to each other. That because of Christ's death, we are with him. And as we are with him, we proclaim his excellencies. If you would please stand. If you're brokenhearted this morning, Christ is calling you to come to him.